0: Good morning, Grace. See how He loves us. Boy, if we could just see how He loves us, our lives would be so different. If we could truly understand the love God has for us, especially when we see that love in Christ, everything would be different. We would certainly end up living fully in what followed that affirmation in that song we were just singing that we realize that it's only Jesus, because God loves us most sufficiently and clearly in Jesus. In Jesus Christ is how we see God's love most clearly displayed in all of human history. See how he loves us, especially when you look at Jesus, the one who came and represented us, and died for us, and rose for us, so that we could be saved from our sin, and from the penalty of that sin, and be restored in our relationship with God, and to break down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between human beings. Only Jesus. That's where we end up when we see how he loves us, realizing who he is, how marvelous and wonderful is his love. That's what has to motivate us every day of our lives, and in many ways, that's the fundamental truth that we emphasize no matter where we are in our preaching through the Bible, no matter where we are in what we are thinking about, singing about, it's seeing God for us in Christ. That's the good news that we have as our central message as Christians. That's what Paul has been emphasizing to the Corinthians, that he is the God who loves out of his infinite supply and sends his son. And that's why he says that it's Christ in him crucified, which is the central message of everything else that has pervasive implications for everything else in our lives but that is the central truth that changed everything and as we consider this morning's passage God's love for us must stay clearly in our minds as the central teaching that we remember as we think about what we will this morning. We continue our series. We're almost to the end of 1 Corinthians. This book has become a friend to me as I've sat under the authoritative preaching of it. Even over live stream, it still had a power that has convicted me and encouraged me and blessed me. And as I've gotten to preach a few of the sermons as well, it's been a delight to walk through this. We had no idea when we chose to preach through 1 Corinthians that it would help us get through a worldwide pandemic. Through tragedy in our church, through tragedy in our nation, and, and riots, and protests, and more division it seems than we've seen at times, but we continue to see God at work in the first century church, and we believe he's at work today. And our job is to see God's love for us and enter into that work as he uses us to accomplish his purposes in this world. So, First Corinthians 16. We're entering the last chapter of this great book that Paul wrote to this church that's very troubled, but this church that he loves deeply. And dearly, and now we enter the last chapter, I must say it's sad for me. I often will read more slowly when I get near the end of a book because I don't want it to be over. And that's how I feel with this book of 1 Corinthians. But this chapter gives us some vital understanding of what it means to live out everything else it's been saying so far. And so let's read it together. We're going to look at chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 11 together this morning. Lord, help us. As we go to your word. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-11. Let's read together. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. As he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. We have so much here that we need to consider that is helpful to living out our daily Christian lives. And I've titled this message, The Glorious Gift of Giving. Giving, as we are called and commanded as followers of Jesus Christ, is not just a call and a command, it is a gift from God everything we have is a gift from God so when we give, we are giving out of the gift we've been given. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that hasn't been given to you? So we start realizing that all our possessions are given to us by God. His gracious abundance overflows in gift giving to us simply in making everything he has for us to enjoy, but also for us to steward and give in return after having been given everything we have what do you have that hasn't been given to you you know that's a rhetorical question the clear and obvious answer should be well nothing i've never come up with anything on my own god's given it all to me and the glorious gift of giving is something we need to learn to love yes very often what we learn to love begins with discipline in that thing Sometimes that feels just dutiful, knowing it's what God calls us to. But the goal is to not stay there, but to move beyond that to the point where we see not just what we've been given as a gift, but the ability to give and look like God in the process. That's a gift as well, a glorious gift. God gives us everything we need. Our daily bread, ultimately His Son, And in this passage, we are being commanded with the Church of Corinth to be joyful and generous givers, mirroring the character of the most joyful and generous giver, God Himself. He gives us our daily bread, his son, creation itself, everything for us to enjoy. And now the Corinthians need to understand the gospel they've been hearing about through this letter more deeply than ever. And the result of that should be an overflow of generous giving hearts in practical daily ways. The gift of giving, the glorious gift of giving. This church is commanded to give to the church in Jerusalem. This is a big deal. This collection that they probably asked about, this is the fifth time Paul begins with this term, now concerning, no doubt an answer to questions they had about various things. But now he's answering the question concerning this collection. You know, it's interesting, he ends this letter with this emphasis on this collection. This collection is a really big deal to Paul. Do you know what 2 Corinthians, he devotes two entire chapters, 8 and 9, to this collection. He, he devotes the entire second half of Romans 15 to this collection. It may seem minor to us, it's not to Paul. It's a really big deal. And as I studied the importance of this, I really wanted to know why. Why is this so important to Paul? That not just the church in Corinth, but as we hear in this passage, the church in Galatian, we find it elsewhere in Macedonia, and he's concerned that all these Gentile churches give this collection that will end up in Jerusalem. What's going on here? Why does he care so much about it? Well, he's giving this gift to Jerusalem. And what we see in this whole passage, verses 1 through 11, is the glorious gift of giving first to this church in Jerusalem and then to Paul's missionary journeys and then to the ministry, the gospel ministry among the believers in Corinth and beyond. And so what that means is They're giving to Jerusalem, they're giving to Paul, and they're giving to Timothy. Not just financially, although that's included. Which means, when we consider what it means to give to the church in Jerusalem, they're giving to the poor. And when they're giving to Paul's missionary journeys, they're giving to missions. And when they give in the way he calls them to, to Timothy, they're giving to ministry. Gospel ministry. So it's the poor missions and ministry that this generous giving is given to. So what's going on here? These poor in Jerusalem, they had experienced a famine. And now these believing Jews in Jerusalem where the church started are being persecuted. They're suffering deeply for their faith in christ as jewish believers in jesus and so the the church was poor more poor than certainly a port city a, a, a coastal city like corinth that had lots of resources compared to jerusalem here especially the christians there and so they're poor And the central exhortation to them is the same as it is to us. And it's found beautifully in the call to worship Kenny started us off with. I just love being part of a preaching team and being part of interacting with the worship leaders. So so Kenny help me think through this well this week. these, These emphases of giving, it's all about giving. And the call to worship is just a wonderful central exhortation as Paul says it to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. I want to read it again. Kenny started us off this way, but if we can just take this to heart and home and to our bank accounts and to our daily giving, we'll have this thing figured out. Listen, as for the rich in this present age, and you know, if you live in this culture, even though you may be having a hard time financially, especially with this, with this quarantine, you're rich comparatively in history and in the rest of the world, you're incredibly wealthy, Most certainly myself included. But listen to what it says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't think you got this because you're so great. Don't be haughty with your riches. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Do we need any more reminders than the economy going through what it's gone through during this quarantine to know that riches are uncertain? How's your 401k doing these days? But on God. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you hear those words to Paul's protege. And son in the faith, Timothy, do you hear them spoken to you by God through Paul? Don't live for what's temporary. Don't live for what's fleeting. Don't live for what's shallow. Live for what lasts forever. Store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. Live for what really lasts, true riches. That's what we're called to this morning. Our generosity is Christian generosity, which means we never operate at a loss in our generosity. It doesn't even mean we operate breaking even. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Please don't think a Christian mentality on giving means, oh, look at me, I've given up everything to follow Jesus. That's not how it works. When Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, that means those who give receive more than they give. Don't forget, they got it in the first place as a gift from God, and now they're giving it, and they're getting as they give. And this isn't just financial. It's anything God's blessed you with, a gift, a talent, an ability, or any sort of resource, a sense of humor, relational abilities, talents of all kinds, money most certainly, but possessions. Are you always thinking, Lord, how can I use this? Even if it's in my name on the title, how can I use this to bless, to advance your purposes in the lives of people in this world? Do we have a generous spirit with whatever it is God's given us? Christian generosity is never operating at a loss or even breaking even. And you need to realize how different this is than the mentality of the Greco-Roman world. We sort of assume that this sort of generosity and caring for the poor and and giving of your resources is this pervasive human idea. It's not at all. If you study world history, this Christian ethic of living at, at, at giving with this sort of mentality, there are other religions who have this, but this Christian call to give and lay down your life for the good of another, it certainly wasn't. The ethic of the Greco Roman world. No, if you gave to the poor, it was to build your prestige and impressiveness in the culture. It was to exalt yourself. And Christian giving is the opposite because that's not how God gives in Christ. He gives by giving himself and becoming poor in our place. And we'll get to that in a bit. And so the first thing we find is the importance of giving to the poor. This collection for the saints. Like I said, it's a big deal. So let's ask some questions. To whom is this given? As I've said, it's to the church in Jerusalem. And we'll talk about the significance of that in a bit. After they had gone through hard times. And he doesn't specify it's Jerusalem here. But it's clear in the other places he talks about it. That that's where this gift is heading. And and the importance of this can't be overstated. It's given to the poor. It's given to the saints the holy ones the set apart ones oh we should have great generosity and charity generally in our lives but in the bible there's a calling to care for the people of god as a first priority and for your own family as a first priority as well especially husbands and fathers and so there's a general generousness for christians but we've got to take care of the family How can we be an example to the world if we're not taking care of our own? And when the church started in Jerusalem, you read in Acts chapter 2 that they gave so generously to one another that there wasn't a need among them. That's how they started. But now we see the church in Jerusalem has needs among them that other churches need to contribute to. And so there is a need among them now. And it's given to these saints, these holy ones. Identify with those believers who are so different than you and seem so far away from you in a way where you give of the resources you have that you could spend just on yourself, but give to these people you'll probably never meet. That's what he's saying. This collection. It's given to the saints, and we find out elsewhere in Jerusalem. And who who is giving this? It's the church in Corinth. It's Gentile churches. It's churches giving to Jewish believers. When is this given? I love this. The first day of every week. Don't store it up and then give strategically out of what you realize you'll be able to give once it's all collected for a year or for two years or four or five months or when it seems most prudent. No, make it a regular habit in your life to give, just like we did this morning. Just like I hope if you're a follower of Jesus, you give with a regularity in your life. It says every week the believers are gathering the day Jesus rose from the dead. They shifted from the Sabbath gathering now to the Resurrection Day gathering, the first day of the week, the day Jesus conquered sin and hell like we read about in chapter and heard about in chapter 15. So they give now regularly the first day of the week. And it's, that means it's part of worship just like it is here. Please don't think we're taking a little break from our worship service when we take an offering here at Grace. It's as much a part of the worship service as anything else we do. It's a way of exalting the greatness of God in your life by giving of your resources, especially monetary resources, which often sting more than anything else when we give. It's it's a regular thing. It's the first day of the week. It's part of worship. It's ahead of time, not just spontaneous and when you might feel like it. It's planned. It's regular. It's disciplined. I've noticed, especially among the younger folks I am friends with, that there seems to be this idea that it's more mean. Something's more meaningful if it's spontaneous. Something's more meaningful if it's unplanned and unregulated and, and uh, not done strategically. There, there's this idea that to just blah, do you know random acts of kindness somehow are better than planned acts of kindness. That's not true. Biblically, over and over again, planning is what God calls us to do strategically. Make it a priority. Make it a priority. Set it aside before you do anything else to the giving of the work of the Lord. Ahead of time, planned, regular, disciplined. How much are we to give? We find out that we are to give with this strangely, maybe to our ears, odd, ambiguous statement, as he may prosper. I think every one of us is a legalist by nature. We want rules that we obey, not people we become. And when we read something like this, it's so easy to say, okay, I need to give regularly, I need to give strategically, I need to give generously. How much? What does that mean, Lord? Could you give me a percentage in that? And there are people I have great respect for who believe the New Testament teaches a 10% tithe for all Christians. I don't find that in the New Testament. I find commands like this to be a cheerful giver, to give as God prospers you. In some ways, it'd be so much easier if if God just said, well, here's the percentage, give that and you're good. You know, pay your dues. That's actually what the temple tax used to be like for for these, these Jewish people in the old covenant, but not anymore. Now it's a matter of going to the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to be generous because you've been so generous to me. What does that mean? What does that look like? Lord, this week, today, what does that look like? With a regularity and a discipline, setting it aside with a planned effort, I hope you have found the joy of this kind of giving. And I love this phrase that happens in the New Testament. They take offerings, we find in Acts, and they lay it at the apostles' feet. They don't have detailed instructions on how this will be spent for me to feel good about it. There's a trust in the leadership and in the community to do that, and I love to give to this church because I have such trust in the leadership. Now I'm one of the leaders, but but as far as where our resources go, that is a wonderful collective effort. A lot of the people involved have far more economic understanding than I do about things, and they're way smarter in some areas. And so I love trusting that they're doing the wise thing. I love that that Jim Clark and the Finance Committee. And the people who count the offering, what have you ever thought about what a responsibility is? I am so glad I don't know what anybody gives in this church. I know what a few people give because they're friends and we have conversations to encourage and exhort one another in our giving. But otherwise, I'm so glad I don't. What a, what a difficult thing that requires great maturity to know how much people give, like just a few people in our church do. But I, I plead with you to trust God To give generously and regularly and in a disciplined fashion so that you can experience the glorious gift that giving can become. And you see how God takes care of you and blesses you deeply because you know your life is connecting with something that really matters. They they do this regularly, first day of the week. How much do they give? Well, as the Lord prospers, I do need to dip into 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4 to see a further description of this way of giving. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. There it is. See, What what does that mean? Give me a percentage. That's so much more simple, right? Right, and it's not as meaningful. It doesn't require spirit-led relationship, community discernment about what generosity looks like. For they gave according to their means, as I testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, they weren't sure how they were gonna make it if they gave that much, but they did anyway, trusting God to care for them as I testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Is that great? They're saying, please, Paul, please let us be part of this. Please. We, we want to be part of what God's doing in this world by giving to the saints. You see, they, they don't want to miss out on the joy of giving in this way. It's one of the most liberating things you can experience when you decide to be this way with your resources. And how else do We give. How much do we give? Well, how much and and how we give is all defined by the gospel itself. And and here's the heart of everything. See how he loves us. Well, how did he love us? Look, Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 8. And what does he say in verse 9? Here it is. Here's the most important verse for my purposes this morning. For you know, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's it. That's the good news of the gospel that God sends his son and the son joyfully goes and takes our place and becomes poor, the man of sorrows with nowhere to lay his head. He's financially poor. He's materially poor. He's relationally poor. His own family disowned him him, and his people rejected him and his friends slept when he needed them most. He understood poverty at a deeper level than any human ever will and he came from the glory riches of heaven and he did it for us why so that we who were poor could become rich that's what he calls us to that's the gospel and if you've never done that amazing exchange traded your poverty for his riches that come through him being poor for us oh i plead with you this morning to do that to turn from your own accomplishments and self-righteousness and turn from ultimately your sin And your incredible selfishness to the grace of God lavishly poured out for you in Christ. That's what he calls us to. This glorious inheritance among the saints. He's given us everything in in the heavenly realm. Every spiritual riches we could ever want. He's given it to us. Oh, We don't need to claw and fight and sacrifice for the riches of this world as our ultimate end. But we store up our treasures in heaven. We use the riches God gives us. Yes, we there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with possessions. But what is our mentality in the midst of it? Is it generous giving, not wanting to miss out on the joy of giving in this way? Why? Because God gave in this way. Jesus became poor so we and Him could become rich. And what what's the practice? How does this actually take place? I love what it says in verses 3 and 4. There's an important lesson here. And man, the church has blown it in this area so many ways and times. Listen to what it says back in 1 Corinthians 16. Verses three and four. How, what, what are the practicalities of it? Yes, practically, people are setting it aside, giving it to the, to the leaders, to entrusting them to provide for their own ministry, no doubt, but also for the, the Jews in Jerusalem who've trusted Jesus. But look at, listen to the practical details of this. Maybe you've slept through this as you've read it before, but listen, what does he say? He says, in the first day of every week, verse two, Each of you to set something aside, store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. I want it done ahead of time. I want it planned ahead of time. Verse 3, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. He trusts them in the midst of all of the mess going on in Corinth. He trusts them to choose reputable men of integrity to go on this journey, and then he trusts them to decide if he should go as well. It's amazing that the Apostle Paul, in many ways, is bringing his authority to bear in the Corinthian church as it hasn't been enough. Now he's still deferring to them, saying, you choose who takes it. You know who has integrity among you, who can bear this gift and be trusted so that there's nothing unscrupulous about it. And if you decided that it's smart for me to go too, well, I'll be happy to do that. He's trusting them. I see so much integrity here. We're not going to play any games We're going to make sure everybody knows that there's nothing hidden and nothing stolen and nothing dishonest going on here. That's why I love the integrity of the budgetary process here at Grace. You can find out where everything in this church is going as the finance committee and the elders and and others involved in this process decide where it goes. it's, It's an open book because no one wants to do anything behind the scenes in this way. And it's done with integrity. I love that. It's, it's done with honesty. The church, sadly, is so often thought of as a bunch of money-grubbing, dishonest charlatans. And when that's been true, we need to repent of it. And we need to do everything to make sure people know that's not what we're about. And I give so easily and thankfully at grace because I so trust those making these decisions and the integrity with which it all happens. I'm so thankful for, as I said, the finance committee and the the ushers and the counters and and, and Jim Clark as he gives leadership to all of that. Why are they collecting? And and this is what I really don't want you to miss. Why? Why is it such a big deal to Paul? He addresses in four chapters substantively what's going on here. It's so much more than just helping the saints of Jerusalem materially. Why? Here are seven reasons behind the why of this collection being such a big deal. You ready? One, this collection is given because we serve a giving God. People who know they've been given much, give much. That's how it goes. If you feel like you just get meager rations from God and everybody else, and you have this sense of, I'm not getting mine, which is what we're fed constantly in this consumer culture then you're not going to be a giving person. You won't be a generous person, but when you believe that you have been lavishly blessed and provided for for by God and will continue to be as you follow him faithfully, you can be generous. You, You can open your hands. We can do this. We mirror the character of the God who's given us infinite riches when we give of our little resources. Two, we've been given infinite treasures in Christ and our daily bread. I am astounded every time we sit down as a family to pray in our home over dinner or at Bible time. I'm just overwhelmed every time and need to thank God for the way he's provided for this church with this, through this church family, through all the people who've come alongside Don and me as we've raised our children, through so many people literally around the world who are serving Jesus and serving as a great example to us. I'm so grateful for the treasures we have, not just in the heavenly realms, but in our daily bread. We've been given so much. Three, we give because God cares for the poor. Now here's what I want you to realize. When you see yourself in a biblical lens, you are one of the poor. Spiritually, before God, you were in desperate poverty See, that's uh, what we forget so often, that we think we're rich because we have possessions and material things. But if we are not found based in the treasures of Christ, we're desperately poor, we're naked, we're blind. Like the the church of Laodicea, they thought they had so much. And Paul wants to say, I know you've got all these things of the world, but in the most important things, you're destitute. And before God, we see ourselves as poor. That's why. We give to the poor, not in some condescending, paternalistic way where we just say, here, I'll help you out there. Aren't I so magnanimous? No, we give completely identifying with and relating to the poor because in the most important and fundamental ways, we were all desperately poverty-stricken before God. And so we can completely relate to them, even if we've had a lot of material possessions throughout our lives. That's why I love the efforts to relate to the poor that aren't condescending here at Grace. The food bank, the people who work there love the people who come to food bank and they often will become part of our congregation. I love our orphan care concern in ministry. Project Hope, through your giving, has given to help people take in foster kids and adopt here at Grace. I love our deacons fund and the way our deacons prayerfully and wisely help people who need marriage counseling and help with their rent or fixing their car or to buy some food. It's it's a beautiful thing to be part of. I don't directly do that. The deacons do on our behalf. But I love when I give knowing it's going to go there in our deacons fund. I just love that our grace partners, some of whom live in the poorest places in the world, are serving in slums, helping people out of that poverty materially, but ultimately spiritually. God cares for the poor, and so should we. And we should do it realizing that we are all the poor. Four we we give because these Gentiles need to recognize what they owe to the church in Jerusalem. They they owe the passing down of their faith to them. They're grafted in to this Jewish church. And they recognize that. Paul loves his people. He he embraces this ethnic identity. He, He doesn't just reject it when he's a Christian. He loves it, but he feels responsibility at the same time to bring about a unity where these Gentile Christians are giving to these Jewish Christians. And what he's doing here, number five, is emphasizing the unity of the church. Think about how important this is. Corinth had this massive problem of factions, divisions, little groups. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. They were divided. And what he's saying to them is, don't have divisions. The the, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. There are no more barriers between you and anyone else because of the gospel And so don't have these in your church. And what a great way for them to get that in their church by commanding them to have an identification with the church in Jerusalem, so far away and so different than them. They need to work out their divisions problem by getting their eyes off of themselves and on believers in the universal church who need their help. I love this. And and this becomes so important for all of us emphasizing the unity of the church, killing divisions among the people of God, killing factions, letting socioeconomic or demographic or generational or ethnic or racial differences divide us. We've got to be the champions more than anyone else in leading to a unity among the people of God that becomes an example that people would desperately like to be part of because of that unity because we don't define our unity by our hobbies. Or our cultures we come from, our backgrounds we come from, our hobbies we have. No, our personality type. No, we find it in Christ. And that obliterates all those things that would tear us apart. And we have unity. And it's vital, number six, for our growth, for our sanctification. When every week, with regularity even every day, we're opening our hands and giving generously for the good of others, asking for God to use us. We grow. We become more dependent on God. Our faith deepens. Giving is a spiritual discipline. I believe as important as any other spiritual discipline. I Believing, reading your Bible couldn't be more important. Praying couldn't be more important. But do you realize that giving, as we said, is part of worship. Worshiping God through giving to the work of God is a glorious way we grow. I believe if you are giving meagerly, you are growing meagerly. I don't think you can grow if you're not giving. It's just how it goes as a Christian. And seven, I think this is interesting. I think, I can't remember which preacher I heard this from. It might have been Alistair Begg. But but he said something so helpful to me. Not only did the Corinthians need to give so they would grow, the Jews in Jerusalem needed to receive so they could grow. Not just be taken care of financially, but you know, one of the hardest things for Jewish people who were God's chosen people through the whole old covenant generations, now to say, now, now those Gentiles, those pagans, if they're in Christ, they're brothers and sisters. There's no superiority because sometimes and, and frequently actually they would forget that the covenant people existed. To be a blessing to the whole world. And that's what happens on the day of Pentecost. when Paul, As Paul refers to here. The day of Pentecost comes. And the spirit now is dispersed well beyond just the covenant people. The purpose of the covenant people was to bless the whole world to the utter, uttermost ends of the earth. That's why we care about missions. The way we do. And so the Jews needed to do this. They had to overcome any sense of superiority. And a great way to do that is to ask people to give to them because it takes humility not just to give but to receive. And that was helpful to them. And second, they're, they're called to give to the poor, but they're also called to give to missions. Verse six. Why do I say missions? Well, Paul says, give to me when I come by the way you receive me. But if you remember, Paul is really careful about integrity and making sure everybody understands his motives aren't for selfish gain. And so he's a tent maker. He works for his living. He, he doesn't actually receive from them what he has every right to receive, but he won't do it because he wants to make sure nobody's questioning his motives. But what he does ask them for is money for his journeys. Journeys. It's not for Paul. It's for what Paul is going to do in his journeys, in his reaching people who've never heard about Jesus. Reaching the unreached, planting churches where there are no churches. That's why at Grace we have sought to give around 20% of our whole budget to missions because we want to maintain this vision ourselves. People have never heard about Jesus and Paul says, give for my journeys in verse six. Not just to meet my needs. He does that with his own hands. He's in Ephesus right now, and when he says goodbye to those Ephesian elders in Acts 20, one of the things he says is, you know how these hands of mine provided for all my needs. I'm not in this for my own selfish gain. But what he does ask them for is to help the church in Jerusalem and help him bring the gospel to the world. And no doubt bring those resources to those people he reaches as well. So he gives to missions. And realize he gives... He calls him to give to missions to enable him not just to bring the gospel, but he knows to be persecuted as well. I just love what he says about where he is right now and why he's delayed in coming to them. Why is he delayed? Because he's in Ephesus. He doesn't want to see them in passing. Verse eight, I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door of effective work is open to me. And there are many adversaries. This missionary calling of Paul he knows. The one thing Jesus told him about his job description when he knocked him down on the road to Damascus is that he will suffer greatly for the name of Jesus. Are we those kinds of Christians who believe that's part of the deal in this world? Or is comfort and convenience and ease what drives us in everything? I just, I, You know, if you read Acts 19 and 20, you see that in Ephesus there, were, there was an amazing revival. But there were riots. People wanted to kill Paul. There was a horrible reaction to this gospel taking over because it was affecting the money of the silversmiths there in Ephesus. And he says, I can't leave because God's working. There are open doors of ministry in the midst of great persecution. Just know that's part of the deal. He says, I hope to spend some time with you. And that brings us to the third kind of giving. It's giving to ministry. He's saying, I want to minister among you. And I don't want to just rush through. I want to spend some time with you. Verse 7. I don't, I don't want to just be there in passing. And for, in this time, that wouldn't have been just an hour for coffee. It would have been a few days before he left. He didn't want it to be a few days. He stayed in Ephesus three years to get that church established. And he doesn't want to rush through Corinth. What a good lesson to us in the midst of our packed day timers. Do we prioritize time with the people of God? So I love ministries at our church, the core of which is our gatherings here on Sunday, our Lord's Supper services, our family times, but our grace groups, these meeting together in homes, sitting across dinner tables, band of brothers and the women's Bible studies, these times to really spend time together. We've got to prioritize it. We've got to make it something we find precious like Paul does here. And this has been the hardest thing about this quarantine. True time together has been ripped away from us. And I think it's having a devastating effect on all of us, spiritually and emotionally and psychologically and relationally. I hope our hearts aren't calcifying getting used to this. I hope they never do. I hope every day the longing to truly be together and see each other's smiles and embrace one another again and have long, lingering conversations is getting more and more precious to you. Paul says, I want to spend some time with you. I don't want to just rush through. It's ministry. He says, greet Timothy. You need him there ministering among you. You need his ministry. You need my ministry when I'm there with you. And I want it to be meaningful and I want to spend some time. And so he does it not because it's easy. And I want you to realize he wants to spend time with them. He loves them. But it would have been so easy to go in avoidance mode. His authority was being challenged and questioned and undermined by these super apostles who were dismissing Paul, they were a mess. They, they, they had sexual immorality being unchecked in this church. They had all these divisions and factions. People were coming drunk to the Lord's Supper. Boy, if you think your church is in a bad way, I think it's good to look at Corinth and say, "Oh, well, we're not quite that bad. But, but Corinth, yeah, but he wants to be with them. He doesn't avoid conflict. He's going to have to take on these leaders. And it gets really worse. These plans he lays out here, they didn't go down this way. If you read carefully in in Acts and in in 2 Corinthians, you realize great tears and hardship get worse. It gets so bad in Corinth, but he wants to be with them. He longs to be with them. He doesn't avoid conflict. He doesn't avoid controversy. He doesn't avoid opposition. He moves right toward it with a loving, gospel-centered goal. And it's so easy for us to take the easy option rather than the more difficult but far more meaningful one. Believing that God can bring reconciliation even when there's conflict and challenge in this way. So, that's it. Give to the poor, give to missions, give to ministry. I love the giving, I love the gospel ministry that goes down here at Grace. I know this is a gospel ministry. It's a ministry that believes Jesus became poor so we could become rich and that's what people need to hear far more than anything else. But here's where I want to end with this exhortation. You may not expect it to be this. I exhort you, saints of grace, to live unremarkable lives. I exhort you, people of grace, to lead unimpressive lives. To never have disdain for the mundane. But to live lives of simple, moment by moment, spirit dependent, gospel centered, biblically informed lives of worldly unremarkability. My goodness, we live in this culture that's all about epic and awesome. And do radical things for Jesus. And I do believe from the world's perspective, we are called to live radically generous lives in light of what God's done for us. But from God's perspective, that's not radical. It's just normal. And it's worked out in normalcy that almost entirely goes unnoticed by the world's watching eyes. Now there are times the world pays attention and says, wait a second. You have a unity in spite of racial and cultural and ethnic and demographic and generational differences. I want to know about that. You give money so what seems foolish to me, to those who need it, explain this to me. But usually we go about our days without anyone saying, wow, you're amazing. You're awesome. You're epic. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to follow someone who lived 30 years in relative obscurity in a little backwater village called Nazareth. And people say, can anything good come from there? And he lived an unimpressive life. Now, when he began his public ministry to redeem the lost world, some amazing things happened, but I don't want you to miss that Jesus lived an unremarkable life by the world's standards. There were huge problems in Corinth. I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice that Gomes, Clark, Gruendike, and and Jackson um, preached on the glorious resurrection of chapter 15. And in the last couple of months, I preached on tongues, women not speaking in church, and the collection. You think something unfair is going on here? I don't at all. I don't at all. I've learned to never view any portion of God's word as less than ideal to preach on at all. I love it. And this is so important. Do you realize how strange it is that Paul goes where he does? A movie maker would never end this letter this way. Why? Because listen to what precedes this passage this morning. Flesh and blood, verse 50 of chapter 15, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable. Death is swallowed up in victory, verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. End scene. Fade to black. Roll the credits. That's the way to end a letter. It's not how it ends. Now, concerning the collection, let's talk about the offering. What? Paul, you got to learn to arrange this stuff a little differently here. You don't understand how to really get people. What Paul understands is what God taught him to understand, that the realities that are glorious, that are eternal, that are massive as you can imagine, that deserve the epic portrayal like Lord of the Rings, they are worked out, though, in the Christian life, in the daily mundane practicalities that mostly go entirely unnoticed by a watching world. Let's live unremarkable lives for the sake of the gospel. Let's not want to be recognized as uh, awesome, uh, revolutionary people. I mean, you hear so much about that. We got, we got to start a revolution. And, oh, the gospel is a revolution. But remember how often Jesus say, but it's not, it's not like you think. It doesn't come with swords and riots and fires. It, it, it starts like a seed. And it comes through transformed hearts. And then the reconciled relationships with God and then one another. And it spreads from there most of the time unnoticeably until it takes over the whole world. But it's not according to worldly sinful economy. It's according to God's ways through his simple, humble people. People you probably wouldn't choose to be part of the team. That's how this has worked out. These huge problems in Corinth, this glorious resurrection, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, and I want to give you my travel itinerary. I'll end with that. What is that about? Do you know, I think one of the most important things I've learned in the last 20 years of my life As much as anything I've been learning about the Christian life, is also one of the hardest things about the Christian life. And that is these eternal, glorious, gospel, amazing, transformative realities are worked out in such simplicity, in such normalcy. Don't disdain the mundane. It's, It's amazing what happens. These soaring, glorious resurrection teachings are lived out in practical, daily living. God doesn't call us to be revolutionaries in a worldly sense or live radical, dramatic lives, but to translate kingdom realities into mundane daily living. So, in all these calls for revolutions and riots, let's love God and our neighbor really well out of the power of the gospel and as the Spirit enables. In the midst of these racial tensions of our day, when you wake up and say, today I need to somehow solve systemic racism, rather say, I think I'll invite someone over for dinner today who looks nothing like me. When you think about your position on COVID-19, rather think, I wonder if there's someone I can bring groceries to who shouldn't come out of their house these days. It's amazing how we tend to think relative to what the model Jesus gives us really looks like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, The hardest thing about the Christian life is it's so daily. Listen to what he writes from prison. July 21st, 1945. During the last year or so, I've come to know and understand more and more the profound this-worldliness of Christianity. I don't mean the shallow and banal version this worldliness of the enlightened would lead us to believe. The busy, the comfortable, the lascivious, but the profound this worldliness characterized by discipline and the constant knowledge of death and resurrection. It's only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. One must completely abandon any attempt to make something of oneself, whether it be a saint or a converted sinner or a churchman, the so-called priestly type, a righteous person or an unrighteous one, a sick or healthy one, by this worldliness, I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, and failures, experiences and perplexities. In doing so, we throw ourselves completely in the arms of God, taking seriously not our own sufferings, but those of God in the world, watching with Christ in Gethsemane. That, I think, is faith. That is repentance, metanoia. That is how one becomes a human being and a Christian. How can success make make us arrogant or failure lead us astray when we share in God's sufferings through a life of this kind? So how should we prepare for the end of the world? We're all living expectantly of Jesus' return. How should we do that? I love where the Bible points us. The Bible says, Jesus is coming back, so go to work. The world's coming to an end, so go to church. Be a good neighbor. Love your family. Grow in Christ. The second coming is coming. Listen to Hebrews 10 says. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing encouraging one another, and he says all the more as you see the day approaching. Judgment day's coming. Jesus is coming back to judge the world. So, go to church. Do something that seems so just normal and mundane, and you think that's what little old ladies do. I take the world by storm and put it on Instagram. No, we live our lives out in humble daily obedience as you see the day drawing near. You know, this this passage of, of living expectantly in First Thessalonians, it, it, right before he says, We who are asleep do not grieve as those who have no hope. Again, resurrection talk. You know what he says right before that? Work with your hands. Mind your own affairs. Aspire to live quietly. Oh, judgment day's coming, so get after the daily things God has in your plate for his glory and for the sake of the gospel. You know, our dear brother, Phil Davis, has dominated so many of our thoughts since the day he died just a few weeks ago. And as I was preparing for this passage and thinking about living an unremarkable life, I thought of Phil so often through this. And it's because I have talked to so many people about Phil before he died as well but in the last few weeks since he died i've talked to so many people about him and i found it quite frustrating to help people who never knew phil know how wonderfully important phil was for the work of god not just in the ministry of our church but well beyond and i find myself wanting people to to get how how amazing phil was and i find myself saying things and do you know what he did he and his wife Lynn would regularly take people to Red Robin. They would, and they'd pay, and, and they would have great conversation. They'd have people in their home, huh? And, and he would always go and find somebody in church that, that he saw it was new here, and he'd go over to him and he'd introduce them to someone and greet them warmly. Man, if he was in town, he was at church. He, he, let me tell you how much his grandkids and his kids loved this man. He was always holding the grandchild if they were around. And I I explain things, and it's so normal. And I want people to say, wow! But it's hard because Phil's probably never going to have a best-selling biography written about him. And even people who have, who've lived for the sake of the gospel, will tell you that the dramatic things in their lives were the result of daily disciplined obedience and the way they gave of their resources, and the way they loved and spent time with people. I just want to read a couple of things in closing here about Phil because it's the only real illustration I have in this whole sermon. I saved the illustration to the end here, and it's Phil. It's Phil's life. He's not famous in the world's eyes, but he was a faithful follower of Jesus and a powerful example to me and everybody who knew him. And he lived from the world's eyes an unremarkable life. Listen to what one of his sons in the faith, Andre Murillo, wrote about Phil. Papa Phil. This is after Andre learned of his death. You showed me what hospitality, generosity, and love look like in action. You offered this to anyone who would let you. You asked specific questions and listened carefully because you cared about the details of a person's life. The joys and burdens of others were your own. You gave and gave and gave, resembling a God who gave his only begotten Son for the world, asking for nothing in return. God only knows how great and wide the ripple effect of love will be that you've caused in this world now and for generations to come. Though I thought this broken place would be blessed by your presence for many more years and needs men like you now more than ever, I've never felt so confident that a man fulfilled his mission here on earth. And his name was Phil Davis. As hard as it still is, especially now, the world is a better place because of you. And I want you to hear the words of Alan Davis, Phil's son, in a letter he wrote to his sons. Listen to this. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. My great burden as a father is to leave a good inheritance to you boys and to your children. In much in the same way that my grandfathers, Ellis and Howard, left good inheritance to their children and grandchildren. I pray that this letter would serve as proof of the inheritance left you by my dad and your papa. As I have thought about papa over the course of these several days of sadness and joy, I've often been reminded of a quote from George Eliot's Middlemarch. Listen, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent An unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might be, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Papa's life may have been unhistoric and hidden, but the vast majority of human history, by the vast majority of human history, indeed, someday, after the passing of generations, his tomb may lay unvisited, but to us who knew and loved him, and were loved by him, how much we owe of the growing goodness of our lives and the world around us to his quiet unfaithful, steady, uh, quiet faithfulness, steady hand, and unwavering love. One day your papa will rise again with the rest of God's people who've already passed from this terrestrial existence. And he goes on and he lists all the ways in this letter before this that Phil Davis loved faithfully and unremarkably from the world's eyes, but so remarkably from God's eyes and those of us who are learning to see with God's eyes. Well, let's give Phil the last word. I said this, I concluded my last sermon I preached here with Phil getting the last word, and Lynn said he would have loved that. Let's give Phil the last word. I wrote to Phil and I told him about one of my children coming home after learning about missions from a missionary. And she wanted to ask God to give her a heart for missions and go if he called her. It was a beautiful experience she had. And listen to how Phil responded. I just love this. Eric, wow. That's what it's all about right there, Dad. Dad. what a precious story to read thanks for sharing it the challenge and the prayer will be to continue to fan that flame and to see it grow as she grows and as the world will want to pull her away more and more may we as a church body and as a community of believers be faithful to help her And you in that process of her maturing and nurturing that heart for God and discovering God's plan and direction for her. Grateful for the intentionality and sensitivity to listen to your kids and point them to Christ. Praying for you and for all of us, all our families, as we seek this together. Blessings, Phil. So unremarkable from the world's eyes. But as important as it can be, in god's perspective let's pray lord help us to be men and women uh, boys and girls a church family that is about the simple daily things of discipleship that lead to lives that are making a difference for eternity even if it mostly goes unnoticed in this dark and fallen world lord i pray we would be a light to this dark world and salt to this needy world lord help us to care about the poor because you do and we are all poor before you before Jesus makes us rich. Help us to care about those who've never heard and invest strategically and generously in world missions. Help us to care about gospel ministry here at Grace and well beyond. Lord, thank you for the amazing grace of being your children. Thank you for the amazing gift of giving that you bless us with. I pray we would joyfully learn to give more and more generously because we understand how much we've been given by you. Thanks for Phil. We continue to pray for Lynn and the rest of the Davis family. Thank you for the incredible blessing they all are to us. We pray for our ministry here, that in the ways you call us to, we would make a difference in the midst of all of the trials and difficulties that our culture's in right now, and that the world is experiencing. Lord, help us to love, to give, because we've been given so much.